What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell this story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Welcome back to the Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite history, mythology, philosophy podcast, and how those subjects bubble up into our popular storytelling. As always, I am tremendously, stupendously, uh, slitheringly excited to be here for another episode of the Midnight Myth. That's not a word. Do those subjects bubble up into our popular culture like a bubbling cauldron of polyjuice potion? Or like a over clogged pipe in Moni Myrtle's bathroom. Yes, they do. Oh, wonderful. Oh, yeah. We are back. We are continuing our series on the Harry Potter movies. Last week was The Sorcerer's Stone. Got a lot of good listener comments and feedback and shares and likes. So just wanted to thank all of you Midnight Myth listeners out there. You are the best podcast listeners in the business. So thank you for everything that you've done and shared. And we're here to talk Chamber of Secrets. I'm going to be honest. When I first saw the movie Chamber of Secrets, I was like, oh, okay. I like the first one better. And then thought I was pretty much just not going to follow the Harry Potter franchise. I hadn't read any of the books. I'd heard of the books and was like, yeah, I just feel like they kind of did the first movie again. And then when I heard Alfonso Cuaron signed on to do the next one, I'm like, interesting new director. All right, maybe I'll check this out and glad that I did because I've since become such a huge Harry Potter fan. And it's interesting to also find out that among the Harry Potter faithfuls, Chamber of Secrets is consistently ranked and the lower end of all of the movies. So I approached this one with a little trepidation I had seen the movie Chamber of Secrets of all the movies the least. Um, Probably the second least was Sorcerer's Stone. And I was a little nervous that I didn't think I'd have a lot to say about this movie or that I'd find it very engaging. And I got to say, Harry Potter fans, myself included, I'm going to give this movie some love. I absolutely agree. And I'm going to admit something here on the podcast that I don't think I've ever admitted publicly before, uh, but it'll give you some insight into why I have such a soft spot for this movie in particular. And that's that I read most of the Harry Potter books very much out of order. The first four books I read in the order two, four, one, three. So Chamber is, yeah, okay. It's very weird. Um, Chamber is the first Harry Potter book that I read. And I did this because it's just what I had on hand. Like I was at my grandmother's for the summer and she had the second Harry Potter book. And that was the summer that 
Goblet came out. So as soon as I finished Chamber, we went and bought Goblet. Uh, and then I went back and like checked out one and three at the same time from the library and was basically reading them simultaneously because I was a very strange child and I was able to keep those separate in my head. But Chamber was my first intro to Harry Potter. Uh, and I love the book like immensely because it's so creepy. It's such a good mystery. All the puzzle pieces fit in in such an interesting revelatory way. And I honestly think this is a really successful adaptation of that book. I think it handles the mystery really well. I think the kids, the actors are settling into their roles a lot better. I think uh, as opposed to Sorcerer's Stone, which often feels like a loose bunch of vignettes that are like, how cool is magic? Let's check out this other cool magical thing. This one just clips along and just drives toward this incredible climax where every little detail matters so significantly to the end of the story. And it just feels like it culminates uh, with some real suspense and some real uh, action and some real excitement. And the adult actors are just hamming it up. Like, uh, oh my God, Gilderoy Lockhart, Kenneth Branagh is just living for it. And Jason Isaacs is just like a slithering snake. It's incredible to watch these adult actors and these child actors together. They're really starting to figure themselves out. So while it's not going to be the best movie by any stretch of the imagination, I think the movies get better as they go. Like this one, I think, is a market improvement over Sorcerer's Stone. You really talked yourself around and away from the fact that you were exposed to these books in the most bizarre, weird order No, seriously, possible. think about this. I read Chamber, and then I read Goblet. I missed Azkaban, so I had no idea who Sirius Black was when I read Goblet, and I was like, I guess I'll figure this out later. And then I did. <laughs> you should see my face, podcast listeners, because I am like, my jaw is dropped, my brow is furrowed. I am looking at my wife and thinking, who are you? Who, who is this who woman? Who does that? How do you take a series of books and just jump around? That makes no sense. Well, when you get inside my head and you understand that I am a non-linear thinker, uh, then maybe it'll make a little bit more sense. But the books are linear, no matter how you think. Wow, okay. I could go on and on about my Ravenclaw wife and the weird ways that she does some things. Uh, she's very much the Luna Lovegood of this household. I am the Luna Lovegood. I also read them upside down and backwards. So let's uh, <laughs> move on from this. We wanted to say that this month and next month, we're going to be covering the Harry Potter cinematic franchise. We'll probably be touching on the books as we go as well. And because of that, we wanted to donate all of our Patreon um, contrib contributions. We're donating those to the Transgender Law Center for this month and next month. So uh, we thank you for supporting us on Patreon. If you want to join us at this time, please know that your donations are going towards that. Uh, and that's in the interest of uh, making sure that you know that we do not align with the previous statements of J.K. Rowling, the author of the Harry Potter series about trans people, trans women in particular. Trans women are women, trans men are men. I, I may say that at the top of every one of these episodes because I think it's deeply important. And trans rights are human rights. Exactly. Anyway, follow us on Twitter, Instagram, follow us on our website. You all know how to reach us. You all do all the time. We love you. Give us money on Patreon. It'll help trans people. 
And let's get on with the show. Yeah, let's go. Shall we do our briefest of brief recaps? Would you like to take it away, Dare? I think I would. So this is the second installment of the Harry Potter franchise. It starts with Harry Potter meeting a strange creature called Dobby the House Elf, in which Dobby confesses to Harry that A, there are house elves, B, they are slaves, and C, that there is an evil plot to destroy Harry Potter, and Harry should not return to Hogwarts. Dobby, using his insane amount of magical powers, tries to stop Harry from getting to Hogwarts a variety of ways, one of which is blocking the entrance to the uh, platform at nine and three quarters, prompting Harry and Ron to steal their father's enchanted car. Upon the arrival of Hogwarts, what seems like maybe just a regular year of school, until there is a blood message on the wall that the Chamber of Secrets has been opened. We also learn in this installment that wizards have a blood purity prejudice. Most importantly, this comes predominantly from House Slytherin and that wizarding families with quote-unquote pure blood, meaning they have no non-magical relatives, view themselves superior to those that have magical relatives. Worst of all are the wizards who come from muggle parents yet have magical abilities, such as Hermione Granger, who gets called a mud blood. The Chamber of Secrets being open, a bunch of students end up being petrified. And in this, our heroes are tasked with trying to figure out the secret of who opened the chamber, what monster is attacking them, and how do they defeat this. This is coinciding with Harry hearing voices in the walls and learning that Harry Potter is something called a parcel mouth, or a parcel tongue, pardon me, that he has the ability magically to speak to snakes, just like the um, Salazar Slytherin, prompting Harry to wonder if he really should be in House Slytherin or if he should be in Gryffindor. Around this time, Harry finds a curious diary of an unknown old Hogwarts student named Tom Riddle who shows Harry a memory where Tom Riddle accuses Hagrid of having opened the Chamber of Secrets, causing the death of a single Hogwarts student. Harry then tries to confront Hagrid, who ends up getting arrested by the Minister of Magic and shift off to Azkaban Prison, prompting Harry to say, if you want to know the truth, follow the spiders. Harry and Ron go into the Dark Forest or the Forbidden Forest, and this is when they meet Aragog, King of the Arachnids, monster of the spider colony, in which Ron and Harry have to almost escape with their lives from this horde of spiders. Before this uh, harrowing action sequence, Harry and Ron learned that Hagrid did not open the Chamber of Secrets and Aragog was not the monster living within the chamber. Hermione Granger ends up being one of the last students that is attacked and petrified. In this, Ron and, Ron and Harry, without the smartest member of the three, have to unravel the mystery and they figure out that the bathroom where Moni Myrtle lives is the place where the Chamber of Secrets can be opened. The monster is a basilisk, which is why Harry can hear the monster speaking in the halls. And they descend with Professor Lockhart, who turns out to be a fraud of a dark arts professor. In this, Harry learns that Ginny Weasley, using the Tom Riddle book, has opened the Chamber of Secrets. And Tom Riddle is actually the memory of Lord Voldemort, trying to steal Ginny's life force and become alive again. In this, Harry has an epic battle with the Basilisk. His loyalty to Dumbledore summons the Phoenix. And in the end, Harry defeats Tom Riddle, defeats the Basilisk, 
destroys the book. Lockhart blows his brains out with a backfired Obliviate charm, and the Phoenix takes everybody out of the chamber in which uh, Harry learns that he is, in fact, a true Gryffindor. Why? Because in his battle with the Basilisk, he drew the Sword of Gryffindor from the Sorting Hat. And that's the movie. Whoo, amazing. Oh, one last thing. Very important. Harry frees Dobby. I was going to say, Harry frees Dobby. Dobby the house elf is now a free elf through Harry's act of cunning uh, and liberation. Amazing, amazing recap. There was a lot of detail to get in there, and this is, it's a whopper of a story. There's so much happening in this movie from a raw plot standpoint, not even to mention the character development, the fact that Harry has one of his first identity crises Am I actually a Gryffindor? Should I be a Slytherin? That he is working through while trying to stop students from being petrified by an unknown monster. While students also think he's the heir of Slytherin because they've all discovered that he is a parcel mouth and he's able to talk to snakes. So he's got this cloud of suspicion over him and he's really unsure of who he is while he's comparing himself to people like Tom Riddle and people like Malfoy. Well, let me ask you this. So the movie came out in what, 2003, I think? Two. 2002. Oh, two. Yeah. A year after Sorcerer's Stone, which came out in 2001. I just want to know, hit me with your thoughts. What do you think of the movie? Does it hold up? I know we both kind of gushed a little about it in the intro. Comparing it to the first one, where do you think this movie ranks between episodes, or I'm sorry, between um, the first film and the second? Well, I, yeah, I said a lot of this at the beginning. Uh, I really do think it does hold up a lot better than uh, most of us remember. It is, in some ways, a kind of victory lap from the first one. It's the same director. It's playing on a lot of the same formulas, but it improves on everything, I think. I think it's a significantly better film than Sorcerer's Stone. And a lot of this are the things that I mentioned. The acting gets better. The story is more driven. It's uh, more compelling. It's more suspenseful. But just from a cinematic standpoint, too, there are a lot of improvements. The visual effects get tons better. You have a lot more um, uh, strategic choices of when to use computer-generated animation versus when to use uh, practical effects. And the puppetry of Fox and Aragog are so good uh, there's so much uh, really impressive practical stuff happening that the CG becomes a lot more seamless. Uh, and then meanwhile, one of the things that I think is really striking about this is the moving camera. Uh, when you look at Sorcerer's Stone right next to Chamber of Secrets, Sorcerer's Stone feels almost uh, immobile, like totally static. Like there's always just a camera sitting there watching people talking. But in Chamber, the camera is moving around the space. It's texturing everything. We are following the sounds within the walls. Uh, there are tons of dolly shots and like uh, crane shots that come in through the windows. It's really quite impressive. And visually, it drives you along with the momentum of the narrative. I agree with all of those points. If you would have asked me before us doing this rewatch, if I thought Chamber of Secrets was a better movie than Sorcerer's Stone, I would have laughed at you. I'm like, Sorcerer's Stone is so much better. But I do think Chamber of Secrets holds up over time better than Sorcerer's Stone. Nothing can replace my first experience with Harry Potter. Yeah, of course. Which was going to see Sorcerer's Stone, and that memory is imprinted in my consciousness. It was one of those watershed moments of your life where you're like, this is so awesome. I am so bought in and I am an instant fan. 
And Chamber, I did not have that experience when I viewed the movie. But going back and looking at it now, it holds up better for all of the reasons that you said. Quite simply, I think it sums up, I'd say in two ways. One, it's a better directed movie. Christopher Columbus does a better job managing, directing, in all of the ways you just specifically noted. And the other thing I'd like to mention is, narratively, it is more cohesive than the first movie. In the first movie, magic drives the characters from scene to scene. It is Harry learning he is a wizard and him being dragged sometimes by mentors into different places where we learn a new magic thing or we're blown away by a new magic thing. This movie, the characters are driven by a narrative, a mystery. They have a major problem. Somebody is attacking students and they personalize this problem for our main character, Harry, in two significant ways. One, um, obviously, actually, I'll say three significant ways. One, he's a hero and doesn't want students to die, obviously. Right. But two, if the school gets closed, he's got to go back to the Dursleys, who are child abusers. Yeah, I mean, Hogwarts is his home. That's the idea of closing Hogwarts is kicking him out and putting him on the streets, essentially. It's like it's taking away the one thing that he truly loves and the people that he truly loves. And this point leads into the second point. As we learn that Tom Riddle is also an orphan, is also someone who views Hogwarts at home, who has to also fight for the Chamber of Secrets to be closed so that Tom can stay at Tom's chosen home, which is Hogwarts. We learn the deep link between Harry and Lord Voldemort and Harry and House Slytherin. So his home is under threat. His core identity as a Gryffindor is under threat. And his friends that he loves are under threat from a monster. So these three, these three pillars move the character through the mystery and they have to solve the mystery in order to resolve these three conflicts that Harry must address. And that to me is just a really tight narrative. It's done really well. It's very well executed Every single scene has something to do with the mystery, some part to play in the mystery or Harry's identity or the fact that there are wizard Nazis. And all of these things, I think, make this movie feel like it's a much shorter movie, even though it's the same length as the first one. And I think it makes it more enjoyable over time. Though when I first saw them, I didn't think that way over time when I look at both of these now watching them week to week, Chamber of Secrets is actually on, a, a, I think, another level. And I think it's great to see, as we're thinking of these movies going forward, how they're going to build off of each other and how they're going to improve. Yeah, I, I think you've you summed it up perfectly. That's really well said. Significant improvements. And uh, to the core, the reason that this movie is so much better is because it's grounded in that narrative, in this incredibly intricate plot, and in how that intricate plot plays into the core identity of the hero. Uh, and how shocking is it, too, when, when Hermione gets taken out, right? When Hermione gets petrified and suddenly the person who has always had the solution, she comes up with the polyjuice potion to try and get the info out of Crab and Goyle. She is always the one who goes to the library and comes up with the answer. She identified the Sorcerer's Stone in the last film. She's even the one who gives the boys the info about the basilisk from beyond the petrified state. Uh, how shocking is it that they remove that core pillar of this group 
and have Harry and Ron kind of on their own trying to solve this mystery without who would often be considered their strongest member, their key member of their group. Oh yeah, absolutely. Hermione saves their hides time again and again. She is the cleverest, she is the most educated, and the best with spells. And it's a nut, It's a really amazing um, narrative thing to do to remove this crucial ally from Harry so that Harry has to figure this out without the heavy hitter of Hermione. And it links to the theme of blood purity as she is the quote-unquote mudblood, which we're going to talk about what we think of that later. I also just reflect, um, I just finished reading the Harry Potter series in completion for the first time. Yeah. And... I think of all of the strengths of J.K. Rowling as a storyteller, to which she has several, I really enjoy her ability to bring mystery into her narratives. It's one of the things that she does. I mean, obviously, she makes the fantasy narrative very contemporary, and that's really cool and brilliant. She's created an interesting world. She's created rich and fun and fantastic characters that I identify with and enjoy watching their trials and tribulations. One of the things that I think is purely unique, because I think every great fantasy writer, to a certain degree, you can say the same thing. One of the things that she does that's truly unique and does so masterfully in the Chamber of Secrets is make this a mystery. Make the mystery drive the characters through the plot so that at every single scene, we're all wondering what our characters are wondering, which is who opened the chamber and why, and then what's this monster, and then how do you stop it? Yeah, it's a whodunit at its core. And and at their core, a lot of the Harry Potter stories have this mystery driving the narrative. It's definitely, uh, she she's really great at crafting puzzle boxes and misdirections and all of the things that are hallmarks of mystery. It's kind of like how when I talk about Stephen King, and I don't talk about Stephen King as much as you do, obviously, on your side podcast, The Wheel of Ka, but uh, in the little of his books that I have read, it struck me that while he's often considered a horror writer, I, I don't really think that's the truth. I think he's a, a writer of character, uh, and the horror generally comes from the character development. So while we would often call J.K. Rowling a fantasy writer, I think at the core, she's writing really compelling character-driven mystery. Yeah, I would agree with that, too. I mean, obviously, she's a fantasy writer. Yeah. You know, I can't de-fantasy. But sometimes genre can get in the way of, like, what the actual content is. And the content is a lot more complex than just, okay, it's fantasy. Let's write it off as fantasy. It's It's got uh, a, a lot more tentacles than that. Yeah, and it's easy to allow magic to take over your story where magic is the end-all, be-all of everything. Why did this happen? Because of magic. How did this happen? Because of magic. And J.K. Rowling is very judicious in when those things happen. For example, Fox showing up. It happens not necessarily because of magic, but because of the loyalty that Harry Potter has to Dumbledore, right? And the sort of Gryffindor pops up at the very end in many ways, yes, that's because of magic, but that's also because Harry is a true Gryffindor and must learn that in order to defeat this symbol of Slytherin, which is the Chamber of Secrets, which is the Basilisk, and which is also Lord Voldemort, which is hashtag all Slytherins. Hashtag not all Slytherins. We can have this debate later off the air, perhaps. Um 
you said a couple of things in that last thing that I want to latch on to as we kind of begin our deep dive into the Chamber of Secrets, as we follow the U-bend, as we flush ourselves down. Uh, and last week on uh, our episode on year one at Hogwarts, we talked about the real-life legendaria around the Philosopher's Stone and how that lays the groundwork for uh, alchemy in the Harry Potter universe and mystery in the Harry Potter universe. And I'd like to do something similar this week and talk about another uh, space where Rowling is drawing from real legends from the ancient world, from the medieval world, and how those suffuse the story, what those add to the story. So I'd like to start by talking about the basilisk, if that's okay with you, Derek. Totally. So what is a basilisk? Not invented by J.K. Rowling, in fact. Most accounts of it stem from uh, the Middle Ages and from medieval bestiaries, but one of the earliest accounts of a basilisk is from Pliny the Elder in his Natural History in 79 CE. Uh, there's tons of variation, just like with the Philosopher's Stone, in the description of the basilisk, but it's usually known as the King of Serpents. In fact, its name, Basiliscus, or even in Latin, it's sometimes Regulus, it corresponds to king, king of something, king of reptiles. Uh, it gets its royal stature from, it's usually described as wearing a crown or a mitre, which is like a pope's hat. Uh, and there is some speculation that it could have been referring to the real life King Cobra based on the crest that a cobra has. Interestingly, in this movie and in the book source material, we obviously see that the basilisk is a massive uh, mammoth snake, but Pliny and a lot of the subsequent sources around the basilisk say it's actually only a foot or two long. Uh, so there are different uh, accounts of what size it is. It really depends on what you're reading. One thing that is uh, common to pretty much all of the sources, though, is that its gaze can kill you. This is a feature of almost all of the basilisk legends and puts it in a similar space to myths about Medusa, the Gorgon. Once they look at you, they can kill you. Uh, and in Chamber of Secrets, we obviously see a whole lot of variations on, uh, you know, Perseus taking on the Medusa with a reflective shield. You reflect back or you look at something indirectly and the power is taken away from it. Yeah, that's a really good point because there's so much of the Perseus and Medusa imagery metaphor going on here. Perseus also gets supernatural aid from Athena, who gets the shield. Athena Minerva. Minerva, yep. So Minerva is the Roman name of Athena. Um, and we have Minerva McGonagall. Uh, Perseus gets also a magical sword from Athena, as well as he gets the uh, shoes of Hermes so he can kind of fly places really quickly. All things that we see Harry Potter, who's great at flying through Quidditch, he gets Fox, who gives him the sorting hat, which then lets him pull the sword. And when we look at the chamber, where the basilisk comes out of is very Gorgon-like design. It looks like a Gorgon head, like a... Oh, yeah, the, the chamber door that he has to open has the multiple snakes on it. Yeah, that's well, a good call out. And also, so not only the chamber door, which has uh, seven snakes, like seven locks, which seven is a big theme of the Harry Potter universe... But when he walks into the chamber against the back wall is an actual Gorgon. Yeah. Yeah. The head of Salazar Slytherin has the with yeah. snake hair. So it's, it's Gorgonizing, not a word, Salazar Slytherin. So there's a lot of parallels here to the ancient symbol of the snake personified with the basilisk. 
And there's a lot of Perseus metaphors happening here with Harry. That's awesome. Um, you know, some other things that are hallmarks of the Basilisk legend is that uh, its natural enemy is the weasel. Uh, which corresponds quite nicely to the Weasley family here. Uh, it's their, it's the natural enemy and the only weakness of the basilisk, the odor of the weasel, and more specifically, weasel urine that can kill the basilisk. So interesting stuff coming out of medieval bestiary there. Well, where does the basilisk enter and exit the chamber? Through a bathroom. Through a bathroom. Uh, and also, you know, if you think about the Weasleys too, they're a pureblood, they're a pureblood family with, with as much blood purity status as the Malfoys, but they are considered blood traitors because they love Muggleborns and they feel like everyone who has magical ability should be worthy of studying magic. And they're very inclusive and very open. So they're the natural enemy of this symbol of Slytherin house uh, as traitors to this blood purity. Uh, you'll also see in some of this medieval bestiary, Phoenix Tears listed as the natural antidote to Basilisk's deadly venom. So that is also something that Rowling is picking up from the Legendaria. And while we see it as a big snake in this one with mostly just snake-like features, uh, a lot of accounts of the Basilisk uh, say that it's hatched from a serpent's egg by a rooster, which gives rise to the depictions of not a big snake, but a more chimeric creature that's part serpent, part rooster. It's almost indistinguishable from another cryptid known as the cockatrice. So Rowling is, is taking from the serpent aspect of this rather than the bird-like aspect, but it's important to note that that's uh, the more common depiction in legend. Now, in the Middle Ages, you do start to see, I think this is important to point out with regard to our conversation last week, an interesting link arise between the legends of the basilisk and alchemical tradition. So there's a legend that the ashes of the basilisk, once it has been destroyed, could transmute silver into gold, much like the philosopher's stone. So I just think it's interesting to call out those links to medieval alchemy in the uh, things that Rowling is plucking from history and legend. Interesting stuff. I, I want to ask a few follow-up questions, if you'll permit me. Yeah, please. And thank you for preparing all that research on the actual real-life myths of the basilisk. The basilisk is obviously also supposed to be a serpent, a reptile. The Slytherins worship snakes. Well, worship snakes is probably a little tough, but there's snake iconography everywhere. Um, you know, Salazar Slytherin was a parcel tongue. Um, Tom Riddle is a parcel tongue. Harry Potter's a parcel tongue. The Chamber of Secrets is covered in snakes. Why do you think Rowling uses the snake so heavily as the symbol of Slytherin and as a symbol in this particular movie? Uh, I mean, that's a great question. There is so much symbolism around the snake in the real world that a lot of it even gets contradictory, but the things that really pop into my mind first are, of course, uh, the serpent in the Garden of Eden, who is the symbol of temptation, who is the symbol of reaching for that which is forbidden, the symbol of, uh, you know, trying to tempt man to find the secrets of God, uh, which I think is important with uh, Slytherin's qualities in mind. Uh, Slytherin is about the ambitious, those who wish to rise to power, those who desire talent, those who are clever, those who are cunning, those who might give in to temptation. 
We can also think of the symbol of the Ouroboros, which is the snake eating its own tail, a prominent symbol in alchemy uh, and a symbol of transformation, a symbol of evolution and a symbol of these cycles of life, death and rebirth that are core to the basis of magic. Uh, so those are the two that really come to my mind, but also just the kind of contemporary perception of snakes and serpents is that they are less savory creatures. They are loved by some, uh, deeply loved by some and venerated by some, but by most they're fearful. Most people are afraid of snakes and you have to have a certain amount of bravery or a strong stomach to approach one. And that feels like it it has uh, a, it smacks of the elitism of Slytherin to an extent. Yeah, I think that's all interesting, and I I think that's all really good analysis. I definitely agree as well with the Garden of Eden serpent and the serpent as sort of the ancient enemy of all things good. Carl Jung has theories about the collective unconsciousness that you know snakes represent uh, fear and venom. And one of the you know reasons for this, in theory, I don't know if this has ever been a proven uh, psychological fact, is that snakes to ancient man, prehistoric man and woman, I should say, were very, very dangerous. Because if you were a person who lived in a cave and you got bit by a snake, you died. And people were uh, taught to fear snakes. And hence, so many of our legends and myths use snakes as the natural enemy. Now, whether or not that is true is impossible to say. Yeah, I mean, I personally think snakes are amazing. I don't necessarily want to get up close to one of them, but I think they're like incredible and beautiful creatures uh, that, that fascinate and compel me, but yeah. But if you're around the wrong snake at the wrong time, you could get bitten and die. Absolutely. Or become really ill. So that is a legitimate threat to human safety. I also think as this world opens up and we see that there is a reason for evil in this world, and that reason comes from the notions of blood purity, comes from wizard prejudice and wizard belief in their dominance over muggles, and in particular, muggle-born wizards. Because there is this prejudiced ideology baked into it, I think it's interesting that the house that propagates so much of the blood purity racist wizardry, for lack of a better term, um, comes from an animal that is cold-blooded. And I don't think that is by any... Sure. I yeah. don't think that's an accident. So, you know, all of the Slytherins obsessed with blood are also ruthless, and they are also the only reptile of all of the animals that represent the houses. They are literally the cold blood animal, and hence we have the blood purity obsessed ruthless wizards predominantly coming out of Slytherin house. It's worth noting that the antagonist in this, while definitely comes from the Tom Riddle's diary, who is Lord Voldemort's memory built into a book, which will factor in later, very importantly, in next in later episodes of the Midnight Myth and of Harry Potter, Lucius Malfoy gives the book to Ginny Weasley in the hopes that she opens the Chamber of Secrets and students die. Lucius Malfoy is a Slytherin obsessed with blood purity who wants to kill children. 
And it's not like he wants to kill children for the ends of killing children, because killing children would give him satisfaction. He wants to kill children because he's on the board of governors at Hogwarts, and if danger is happening at Hogwarts, he stands more of a chance of removing Dumbledore from power at Hogwarts, which means that Slytherins can have more of an influence over who is allowed to study magic. So it's like the the killing and the maiming of children is just a means to removing the uh, acceptance of Muggleborns at Hogwarts. So it's almost more sinister in that way. It's definitely Machiavellian, and it it's definitely a major power play. But I would also push back a little bit. I do think this character relishes the idea oh, of muggle-born children dying. Of course, yeah. And, and gets pleasure out of it. I really do. Yeah, he's a true Death Eater. Absol- um, absolutely. He has no problem killing children. Yeah. If that means, uh, as long as they're muggle children, he won't kill pure-blood children. Yeah, and he won't see any harm come to his own son. He will raise hell if harm comes to his own son, his own pure-blood son. But yeah, he absolutely does not care about the welfare of muggle-born children. Yeah, absolutely. And this speaks to one of the more unique aspects to the Harry Potter franchise, which gets fleshed out and the seeds get planted in this movie. And that is the reason the Dark Lord exists, the reason the Dark Lord can come to power, and the ideology that the Dark Lord represents. In a lot of major pop culture fantasy narratives, the quote-unquote Dark Lords are really just kind of evil because they're evil. Why does Darth Vader Darth Vader? Because he Darth Vader's. Why does Sauron Sauron? Because he Saurons, et cetera, et cetera. You can say the lot of why does any like major villain in most comic book movies or most comic books, why do they do what they do? Most of the time because they're mustache twirling evil. Yeah, I want to take over the world because I want to take over the world. And while there's nothing necessarily wrong with that, We see a little bit more here in the Harry Potter franchise. We see that the descendants of the heir of Slytherin believe in an era of blood purity. It makes them bigoted towards the muggles and the muggle-born wizards. That creates the conditions by which a power-hungry, very intelligent, charismatic dark wizard such as Voldemort can manipulate that prejudice that exists and use it as a pretext to establish an authoritarian regime, not in the ancient world, but in today's world. Yeah, he's drawing from centuries of this kind of ideology that's baked into the wizarding world. And if we think about Hogwarts as one of the primary institutions, uh, one of the most well-regarded wizard schools in the world, and one of the prominent wizard schools, and probably one of the first... Uh, It's a thousand years old. It was formed by the most prominent wizards of its time. And one of those wizards, I mean, this was like the ninth or 10th century. So none of them had modern or elevated ideas of inclusion and equity. But one of them was a hardcore racist and thought that muggle-borns were completely unworthy to study magic and should be kept out of the school. And the others were like, no, no, if they have magic, we should take them. And as good as you could say Hogwarts is now, as, uh, as much as it is a home and a place of love and warmth for people like Harry, uh, it is built on those bones. You know, it has a chamber of secrets lying beneath it. Underneath one of the bathrooms in the pipes, there is a basilisk who continues to feed and continues to survive because this ideology has not, in fact, 
been stamped out in the thousands of years or in the thousand years since Hogwarts was created. The idea that the Chamber of Secrets is there and is connected to the school through the all-important plumbing, which every building needs. You need to have plumbing in order to have a functional building because waste has to go somewhere. The fact that the chamber is there and is connected to everything through those pipes says, hey, even the institutions that we think are good are built on this systemic injustice. And every single dark wizard, every single evil wizard we see in the entire Harry Potter franchise, all got their education at Hogwarts. It's clearly not doing enough to fight the racism that exists in this society. And in this respect, we see Chamber of Secrets pivot yet again and become a a story that has social commentary. And that's not going to leave anywhere in the franchise. The first one is just purely about magic and the wonder of discovering magic and being initiated into the magic world. This narrative complicates it because we learn that there are dark wizards still, and those dark wizards have a racist Nazi-like ideology that exists simultaneously in the exact same chambers that our heroes exist in. And even though Dumbledore's not a racist, even though... Uh, Snape is not a racist, even though McGonagall's not a racist, they're still allowing this to exist in their school. And that's part of the reason that a dark wizard can rise and a dark wizard can, after their fall, regain power. And we're seeing that here. I mean, I mean, you know, Lucius Malfoy, at the very last moment he's in this movie, Attempts to murder Harry Potter. Yeah, he he full on says Avada like he's about to use the killing curse on a 12 year old. Yeah, I mean, we haven't learned the killing curse yet. So who knows when that was originally written? Yeah, if that was meant to mean the killing curse or, or if Jason Isaacs was just like ad libbing something he thought sounded magical. But we can certainly interpret the fact that it's still in there. We can interpret that even if he wasn't going to use the, the, the quote unquote killing curse. He was going to curse Harry Potter. He was going to attack this child here and was going to do it in school, in daylight, with impunity, realizing that if I attack this student right now, I am so rich and powerful, no one can stop me. And that is a very troubling omen for our heroes. And we do need to take that reflection into our own world. If we have institutions built and designed to do things like have blood purity or be racist against descendants of African slaves, those institutions are still going to pump out people that are willing to act on that. And you have a duty to try to stop that. Yeah. You actually have to clean out the sewers and like rebuild them from scratch. If you want to undo systemic injustice. Um, Yeah. I think that's, that's, uh, that's great. You know, one of the things that that comes out of this is what we were touching on in the beginning of this episode, the identity crisis that Harry is going through, because obviously in the first installment, in his first year, he was almost placed in House Slytherin, which is the house that is uh, frequently associated with this this elitism, this blood purity, and this racism, uh, and is more often than not associated with the slavery, the enslavement of house elves. Um... So Harry 
believes because this hat was placed on his head and said, oh, you have some Slytherin qualities that maybe he hoodwinked the hat somehow into putting him in Gryffindor. And he actually has no control over those qualities that are more Slytherin-like in him than Gryffindor. And this leads into one of the most compelling themes of the series that's put really well by Dumbledore in one of the final sequences, uh, where he says to Harry, it is not our abilities that show who we truly are, it is our choices. Thereby saying to Harry that when the hat was placed on your head and said you would do well in Slytherin, you said I'd rather be in Gryffindor, and that showed more about you than just what the hat was able to glean from your head. The fact that you wanted to choose the path of bravery, of courage, and of chivalry uh, says more about you than the fact that you might have some ambition and some talent. Uh, and I think this is an important thing that we're going to track through the whole series, this idea of choices. But it especially says, like, yeah, there's this really lengthy system of, of racism and bigotry in the wizarding world, but we have the ability to choose a different path. It's not always the easiest path. In fact, it's frequently the hardest. But people do choose to make, you know, to make that go a different way, on an individual level at least. Yeah, I totally get that and 100% agree. One other thing I'd like to bring up too, if that's okay, if you'll yeah, per yeah, yeah. permit a pivot, is how this movie interacts with knowledge systems and how it interacts in particular with the questions of epistemology. And that is the, the study of how do we know what we know. And anytime you're asking the question about knowledge, where does it come from? How do we gain it? How, when we have it, how do we verify that it's accurate and correct? You're engaging in a form of epistemology. And I do think there's some epistemology in this movie I'd like to discuss, if you'll permit me. Of course. First, it takes place in a school. And a school is, a first and foremost, a place of knowledge, a place to give students the ability to learn things they did not know. And once they know those things, to be able to use those things as they go forward as an educated person. Its job is to create and form knowledge and impart that knowledge onto others. And sometimes also to preserve the knowledge that was once known and pass it on. But where does the actual knowledge come from? Well, we see a few different things that we get in this. There are, A, there are legends. There's the legends of the Chamber of Secrets, is one form of epistemology that Minerva McGonagall says to the class when she explains the, the legend, which in the book happens in the History of Magic class. Um, two, there are actual eyewitness accounts of things. So people see things, right? So Tom Riddle gets to share a memory with Harry Potter. Harry gets to see what Tom saw. It is an eyewitness account that leads to a form of knowledge, that knowledge being Hagrid opened the Chamber of Secrets. There is also uh, those who bear witness to Harry at the scene of the crime, saying, okay, now that we've seen you at the, the place where the petrification took place, we can now say we know you opened the chamber. The thing with all of these different competing forms of knowledge is that none of them are necessarily right or wrong in any regard. So we get a memory. We get to see the eyewitness account of Tom Riddle. However, it is filtered and distorted. It is done with power and purpose. When knowledge is created purposefully, I'm creating the knowledge to do this. 
it becomes what philosophers would like to say epistemically corrupted, corrupted knowledge for it to be true. Knowledge must be on its own verifiable without any other motive or truth or purpose. Consider gravity, regardless of your political persuasion, regardless of your upbringing, regardless of where you were born or when you were born, there is gravity in the universe. Gravity, uh, goes against what's called possible world analysis. Can we imagine a possible world without gravity? If so, what would that world look like? And it's a way that you can kind of verify whether you've uh, uncovered something that is uh, that has fundamental veracity or whether you have not uncovered something. And there's no possible world we can imagine at this point in time with all the knowledge that we have that wouldn't have gravity. So we can say, there is gravity. We know gravity exists. If we apply that same, you know, metric to some of the knowledge systems we see, is there a possible world in which Tom Riddle didn't show Harry the full truth? Is there a possible world in which Tom Riddle might be not who Tom Riddle says he is? Is there a possible world in which Tom Riddle is just incorrect in thinking Hagrid opened the Chamber of Secrets? And all of these different things we see these characters working out as they try to unravel the mystery. And what is a mystery at its core narratively? It's the strive for knowledge. You want to learn something that you don't know. Who opened the Chamber of Secrets is a piece of knowledge that these characters are striving for. So we have a few different tent poles. Hermione represents institutionalized knowledge because she uses the academic resources so they need to get a little bit of knowledge from Draco Malfoy because they're trying to either confirm or rule him out as a suspect. So what does she do? She reads ahead in her potions book. She creates a potion. She uses the knowledge of the institutions to try to gain the knowledge of the mystery with varying degrees of success. She turns herself into a cat, which is regret regrettable, but they do get to rule out Malfoy as a suspect. They learn through this that Malfoy isn't, isn't who he is. Let's take, for example, Gilderoy Lockhart, and let's examine this character and what this character represents epistemically and how that can be linked to the epistemic or epistemological roots of Tom Riddle and how they share a kinship in how they create and form knowledge. Lockhart accompanies the greater and better wizard into the dangerous scenario, watches that wizard defeat whatever that scenario is. Abandoned banshee or a vampire, yep. And steals that knowledge from them by using a memory charm, Obliviate, wipes their brain and takes their deeds as his own. It is epistemological warfare. I will control and dominate your mind so I can take what you know from you and claim it as my own. And he does so to benefit, to have fame, to have wealth, to get a professorship at Hogwarts. He does so with all these epistemically corrupt reasons. Similarly, Tom Riddle creates a diary, but not to just, you know, work through Tom Riddle's thoughts. It becomes a vessel by which the heir of Slytherin can then hurt and harm and mislead people. It takes over Ginny Weasley's mind, robbing her of her agency, her ability to know things, and then seeks to completely dominate and control her life force and misleads Harry in telling him that his trusted dear friend 
something Harry should quote-unquote know. There's no way Hagrid, because I know Hagrid, would open up the Chamber of Secrets and kill students. Even though he likes dragons and monsters, he's not a blood purist. They know that. And so I think there's some interesting philosophical things happening in how this movie uses mystery and epistemology. Yeah, I mean, especially with the diary, the the imagery that's crafted around it, that it's, uh, you know, a diary or a journal in itself is this invitation to spill your knowledge, to spill your subjective experience onto the pages of a book, a book which is usually a vessel of knowledge. And the diary of Tom Riddle absorbs uh, the, the reader's experience, absorbs the writer's experience, and then draws the reader all the way into the subjective memory of the original holder of the diary. So it just like when you're reading a great book that you are super compelled by, you get completely drawn into the character's experience and you put a little bit of yourself in it too. You uh, filter it through your own understanding. You filter it through your own subjective experiences as you are experiencing what the character is. Harry gets drawn into what looks like a you know a first person objective memory like there is nothing to refute here this is what really happened but it's being fed to him through manipulation and intentionally misleading him to believe something about Hagrid somebody that he truly trusts and so there is something about that experience and the possession of Ginny Weasley to where she is so uh, engrossed in this diary. She has poured herself so much into it and she has let it take hold of her so much that she is unable to separate herself and her actions from the diary. There's something in this that reminds us uh, about the, the importance of critical thinking, that reminds us that when we are, say, reading something or when we are watching the news maybe or we're getting information from somewhere, that it's important to step back and say, okay, who's telling this story? Who is imparting this knowledge? What is their motive? Uh, And what is behind it? Am I getting the full picture, or am I being fed something with a purpose, with manipulation? Because so often, uh, those those sources of knowledge are what whip uh, people who put themselves into that source, into that frenzy that forces the creation of really damaging and toxic ideologies. So I think uh, it's reminding us again, hey, step back, remember to think independently and interrogate uh, information and knowledge that you're getting for the, uh, the for what's truly behind it. Yeah, and in order for there to be oppression, in order for there to be a fascistic regime, there has to be a epistemology that says this is what we know and how we know it. And I know that sounds a little fancy and philosophical, but when broken down is quite common sense. In order for you to claim that you are superior to another and hence can deprive them of their basic uh, valid human or elven rights, you have to say that you know that to be true. That is a necessary presupposition. So Lucius Malfoy has an epistemological system, one that pits himself at top of the social hierarchy and everyone else below it. And because his knowledge system places him at the top, he has a right to deny their humanity, to take their rights, to enslave house elves, to make sure the house elves torture themselves at his own delight and pleasure. And this is no different than fascistic regimes of the 20th century, the Nazi Germany, and created incredible knowledge centers. 
designed to pump out the propaganda to encourage racism against Jews, gypsies, to create worship of the state, to create a Aryan um, military, you know, fascist society that became Nazi Germany that created knowledge in order to justify the fascistic regime. Similarly, we see um, we see Lucius Malfoy engaging in similar practices, manipulating children, trying to brainwash them into your cause, having the ones that disagree with you, uh, casting them and relegating them as other and as inferior, basing your wealth and power on the oppression of those not able to defend themselves, such as the house elves, and worse, uh, willing to let children die in order to gain a little bit of power over a school, which would give Lucius Malfoy more epistemic power to create the knowledge that Lucius Malfoy wants, which is a pure-blooded, wizard-dominated world where the mudbloods and the muggles are inferior to the wizard. Yeah, absolutely. Well, on that happy note, would you allow me a slight pivot to another topic here uh, as we get close to the end? Indeed. Uh, so, of course, this is the installment of the Harry Potter series where we are first introduced to the Sword of Gryffindor, which will become a tremendously important relic throughout the series uh, and plays a very important role in this installment. So I want to spend a little bit of time with the Sword of Gryffindor as we keep track of as many of the big, important artifacts as possible as we go through this series. Uh, the similarity of the Sword of Gryffindor to the sword in the stone of the Arthurian legend obviously cannot be ignored. If you know anything about King Arthur, if you've seen the Disney movie, The Sword in the Stone, even if that's all that you know of King Arthur, you know that he was granted sovereignty over England, over Britain, because he pulled a very important sword from a stone. And there was an inscription on that stone, as Mallory puts it, that says, Whoso pulleth this sword of this stone and anvil is rightwise king born of all England. Uh, similarly, Harry pulls the sword of Gryffindor from the sorting hat, uh, also an ancient relic, as it magically materializes there. I just want to call this out because, A, you know, I love the Arthurian legend and it's an obvious parallel, but there are some things that we have to keep our eye on uh, with how Harry Potter evolves the uh, the legendary material that it's pulling from. Uh, when we think about King Arthur pulling the sword from the stone, or it happening later in the legend when uh, Galahad also pulls a sword from a stone to prove his worthiness to seek the grail or to sit at the round table, uh, we often do conflate that action with proof that Arthur is going to be a great king of England because he has the qualities of a great king of England. But in truth, what's really happening is the forgotten heir of Uther Pendragon, the former king of England, is showing up to claim his divine birthright. These are the Middle Ages. You don't become king because you are the best, because you are the bravest, because you are the smartest, because you are the kindest. You become king because you are divinely ordained to rule. What Harry is doing is very much the opposite. He is pitted against the true heir of Slytherin in the Chamber of Secrets in Tom Riddle, Lord Voldemort, who is literally the last remaining person of the bloodline of Salazar Slytherin, someone who is 
ordained by birthright to inherit the key to the Chamber of Secrets. Harry Potter is not that. Harry Potter is pulling the sword from the hat because he is worthy, because he is a symbolic heir of Gryffindor. As Dumbledore says, it's less about our abilities, it's less about our birth, it's about our choices. And Harry has made the choice to be brave, the choice to be chivalrous, and the choice to sacrifice himself for others. He truly, he, he sacrifices himself for Ginny Weasley in this story, even though he barely knows her, just because he's, uh, just because Ginny is his best friend's sister and is a life worth saving. Uh, he takes basilisk venom. That proves that regardless of his birth, regardless of the fact that he's this fair unknown, like we talked about last week, that we don't know of any, like he's not pure blood, we don't know of any great ancestry, at least at this point, for Harry. We just know that he makes good choices, that he's pure of heart, that he's noble, and that when given the option of rising to power as a Slytherin or doing the right thing as a Gryffindor, he chooses the Gryffindor qualities every time. So I just want to keep an eye on that as we see the evolution of these very medieval and often very ancient mythological ideas that suffuse the Harry Potter series, they're always going to be evolved to this very contemporary perspective that says it's, it's not about divine right. It's not about being a myth. It's about being a good person. It's about being a good boy and becoming a good man. Yeah, the Slytherins say that based upon their bloodlines, they have a right to magic, they have a right to hoard the secrets of magic and control the institutions of magic and then use those to suppress those they feel that don't have that same lineage or birthright. And here is Harry Potter coming through, champion of the, you know, the Muggleborns, pulling the sort of Gryffindor out of the sorting hat simply because he is a true Gryffindor by characteristic, not by birthright. It is. A, do you think it's a little more complicated? I guess we do. We know this at this point that Harry Potter's parents were also Gryffindors. Uh, I think we do. Um, I, I don't know if it says we, that in the movies, but we do in the movie because yeah. they show Harry Potter's father as the Gryffindor seeker. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. So there is a little bit of legacy there, but I do think the the main symbolism you nailed. Yeah. Um, do you have any final thoughts before we wrap up? There's just so many good things to this movie that it does. We get our first polyjuice potion. We get to see uh, Ron and his fear of spiders. We get the introduction to blood purity and wizard racism. We get to see the world expanded as we learn why dark wizards are dark wizards. And we get to learn why Slytherins are Slytherins. And all of this is just just the beginning of more adventures at Hogwarts. Yeah, I uh, I have really enjoyed talking about this one. Obviously, Chamber is very close to my heart, but I am also so excited that next week we're going to get to Prisoner of Azkaban, which is definitely one of my favorite movie installments of the series. So I'm looking forward to our discussion next week. I can't wait to take some of the things that we learned from here and keep following them throughout the series. This has just been extremely uh, rewarding already, and we're only just getting started. We're only 12 years old. We're only in our second year at Hogwarts. So uh, we hope you'll join us next week for year three. And uh, until next time. Be kind. Be kind. Be kind.